the profitability of hacking is there, right? And there's a lot of ways of approaching hacking. You know, you can find a flaw in the computer system and you can hack them. But there's also the aspect of attacking what we call the human element or going after a person individually. And what's so complex with coupling technology and people is that, you know, let's just say you work in a company that has 5,000 employees. That's 5,000 potential vulnerabilities that you have, right? Because one user could be the entire downfall of an organization. And that's the practice of what we call social engineering, which is trying to manipulate somebody in some way, shape, or form through some sort of persuasion to get them to do an action on behalf of you without them knowing that it's bad. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dave Kennedy. Dave is a cybersecurity authority whose mission is to drive the industry forward and make the world a more secure place. In addition to founding two large-scale cybersecurity firms here in Cleveland, Trusted Sec and Binary Defense, Dave has testified before Congress on issues of national security and has appeared as a subject matter expert on hundreds of national news and TV shows. Dave started his career serving in the United States Marine Corps, focusing on cyber warfare and forensic analytics, including two tours to Iraq. All experience he was able to leverage to become chief security officer for Diebold, a Fortune 1000 company based here in Northeast Ohio. In 2012, Dave left Diebold to found Trusted Sec, a information security consulting company and sister company, Binary Defense, which is a full-service, 24-7, 365 monitoring and detection company that focuses on the detection of attacks in their early stages. Simultaneously, Dave started DerbyCon, which became one of the highest regarded and attended security conferences in the industry. Dave is ultimately a true champion of cybersecurity. Online, he goes by his Hacking Dave handle, where he has amassed over 150,000 followers across social media. He served as an advisor to the hit TV show, Mr. Robot, and he is the co-author of Metasploit, the Penetration Tester's Guide, co-creator of the Penetration Testing Execution Standard, and creator of the Social Engineer Toolkit. Really quite special to hear Dave's stories here and learn about the incredible organizations he's founded and grown here in Cleveland. So please enjoy my conversation with Dave Kennedy. You know, just before we, we turned the mic on just now, we were talking about how you were actually just on the news discussing the cyber implications for the, the war in Ukraine while I was reading about a hack at uh, a vendor that my company uses for user management and authentication purposes. So for better or for worse, cybersecurity is is one of those increasingly and ever topical topics. It tends to be just one of those things that I, I think most think most people don't think about uh, until something happens to them uh, explicitly, uh, which is of the many reasons I, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation with you as a, as a true expert and an advisor on cybersecurity and as an entrepreneur in the space. So thank you very much for, for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. And I uh, look forward to, to the podcast and uh, getting everything. But uh, cybersecurity is definitely one of those things where you know, I truly enjoy it. It's become a passion and hobby throughout my whole life and uh, dedicated my entire career to it. And uh, it just continues to get more and more exciting, it seems like, every year, which you never would have th thought computer security would have been exciting. But uh, the way that it's evolved <laughs> and, and everything else, it's uh, such a crazy industry. It keeps you on your toes all the time. Yeah. So for, for those who may not have an understanding of who you are, your, your online hacking Dave persona, uh, or, or your background generally, I'd love if you could just give us a brief introduction and, and maybe how cybersecurity became that thread that ties your your career together? Yeah. So uh, my name is David Kennedy. I'm the CEO and founder of, of two cybersecurity firms here uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. We have a, an office in Strongsville, though our new headquarters is uh, opening up in May. So we're really close to that. It's a brand new state-of-the-art facility building, training facility for kids and colleges mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, that'll be in, in Fairlawn, Ohio. And then I have another company, Binary Defense, which is in Stowe, Ohio. 
Uh, a lot of times if you're driving out Rod 8, you can see the binary defense front signs from the highway. They always get complimented on the, the, the backlit you know, thing. It stands out. There's nothing else there other than that. So, But you know, I've been in the security industry for, for gosh, uh, almost 25 years. My career really started off as a kid. My, my parents moved from place to place to place. And I really found my home with computers because I wasn't able to you know, create friends because I was always, you know, going to a different school and having to, you know, meet new friends and, and kind of socialize. And so I found my my home really in in computers. And so I started getting into programming, started getting into obviously the things that kids do with video games and everything else. I, you know, played StarCraft and Warcraft and all those different things. There was these games that were called multi-user dimensions, which were before video games and graphics, basically. And you actually had to like type, you know, go north and stuff like that. And kill people and stuff, you know, all, all typing out and, and those types of things. And then, um, and then I realized, you know, I, I really dislike school. Not that I didn't know school, but I didn't enjoy school. I wasn't learning much. It wasn't in the, the thing of computers, and I kind of obsessed on computers. And so I almost uh, actually failed out of high school. I basically I graduated from Bedford High School. I moved from, let's see, Willowick to Wycliffe to Perrysburg to Lyndhurst to Bedford. And then uh, Bedford is where I eventually graduated from. And I actually didn't get to walk, you know, and get my diploma or things like that. I went to summer school just to pass to graduate. And then um, from there, I'm like, well, hey, college probably isn't the best route for me since I really don't like school. So why not join the military? So I ended up uh, taking what's called the ASAP test, which is the aptitude test. And uh, I joined the United States Marine Corps and uh, joined the intelligence community side of the house. So I scored really high. Um, their aptitude tests, especially around intelligence, cryptography, computers, things of that effect, things that I was really interested in. And uh, the Marines honed me in right onto the intelligence side. So I had a top secret government clearance. I worked in some of the you know nation's most top secret facilities, got to do some really cool stuff. I deployed twice to Iraq for intelligence-related missions. Uh, so I spent about two years in the Middle East. Uh, I was in Bahrain and Afghanistan and uh, spent a lot of time learning security and cybersecurity, which is its early form then. Uh, cybersecurity really was a brand new industry that was being created. And, you know, I spent five years in the Marines and then I got out and joined a small consulting firm here that was in here in Cleveland, it's no longer around, and then ended up becoming the chief security officer for Diebold, where I ran their global security program for a number of years, had a team of about 55 folks, and then eventually left Diebold and started my own companies, literally in the basement of my house. I, uh, it's interesting, I was one of the youngest VPs in Diebold history. Uh, I was I think I was like 27 at the time. And you know, I'd already kind of solidified myself as being a subject matter expert in the security industry, which has been a really awesome thing because it was such a new industry. You know, folks coming up were able to really kind of craft the industry and form it the way that they needed to. And so I became very much a, a subject matter expert in the, the arena of cybersecurity. And so I started a, a company in the basement house. I literally, my wife had just had twins. And uh, I come home from a perfectly stable job. Everything's great. Have a golden parachute. Like literally don't have to worry about anything. You know, like everything's perfect. And I'm like, hey, honey, uh, I think I want to quit this perfectly good job and start, you know, my own business in the basement of my house, you know, and that was in 2011. And flash forward, we have over 350 employees. We're worldwide. You know, we're one of the largest cybersecurity companies focusing with all the, you know, we, we do work with the Fortune 5 to Fortune 100 to Fortune 1000s. And we're growing just leaps and bounds uh, every single day. So we really solidified ourselves as being one of the best out there from a cybersecurity perspective. And all here in, in Cleveland, Ohio, which has been an awesome testament. And, you know, coming back home and all that good stuff from the military, uh, being able to create your own company and, and put it in the image that you want it to be at. No, it's, that's fantastic. When you came home that one day from Diebold, what what was that? the impetus to to want to create something what what were the what was the insight that you had what what was the problem you were that was gnawing at you that you were looking to solve you know for me i, I uh i've never been a, a corporate type of person so i'm not the you know I, I will get in a suit and tie i hate being in a suit and tie like when you see me on the news i'm on the news all the time i'm on cnn and fox and cnbc and msnbc I, I, I'm literally wearing a suit top and i'm wearing gym shorts on the bottom i, I hate you know <laughs> suits and ties i hate dressing up you know, but I'm not that type of, of culture. You know, you think hacker, you think computer nerd and that type of stuff, right? You know, I always enjoy having fun. And when I came to Diebold, it was, uh, you know, kind of that stuffy corporate environment. But I changed that culture. You know, think about it. I, mean, I was 26 when I joined, 27 when I became a VP. And I changed the culture there to be more exciting and fun. Like we had Nerf guns in our office. We were known as like the fun crew. You know, we had, you know, I'd redesigned and kind of rebuilt how we, we worked. And I had such a great relationship with IT. I had such a great relationship with the board of directors, our CEO, our CFO, and um, had really established security as being one of the top priorities for the organization and company through 
you know, how I communicated and how I was able to take complex situations and, and bubble up to risk and understand what, what their language was. And I think those communication skills really made me successful in being successful in that job position that I had. And so I looked at that. And, and at the time, we had built a state-of-the-art security program. In fact, uh, we had won one of the largest contracts in Diebold history because of our enterprise security program that we had built. And, you know, great, you know, testament to the team that we had and everybody else there. But, uh, um, you know, so security was kind of like top notch. You know, we were like the known as like being having one of the best, the best type of security programs that was out there. And I was like, well, if I can do this here, I can help other people across the board, not just this one company, but a lot of organizations to get better with security because it's something that everybody struggles with and not a lot of folks to understand. There's a, a big deficit in talented people in the cybersecurity industry. Now, there's a lot of people coming in from school. So there's a lot of junior level positions because it's such a new industry. But there's like this big gap in the middle and this big gap at the end around seasoned and qualified individuals in cybersecurity. So, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while and I'm just like, you know, I, I have a great job here, but I can help others in different places. And that's always been kind of my mentality of helping others and making the world a safer place in cybersecurity. And I knew it was kind of my calling and I needed to do it now or else I would have never done it. I would have stayed there for the rest of my life. And so at that point in time, I was like, honey, let's do this. And she's like, listen... This sounds crazy. This sounds like a dumb idea, but I support you. I believe in you. And uh, anything you put your mind to, you'll be successful at. So let's, let's figure this out and do it. So, you know, we ended up doing it. And, and lo and behold, it, it worked out really well. And that, that first endeavor was the creation of Trusted Sec. That's right. Trusted Sec was, was founded in 2011 in the basement of my house. And it's funny because uh, when you start a business, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I had no idea how to start an LLC. I hadn't gone to business school. I didn't know how to balance the budget or invoices or things like that. And, you know, what was great is, is when you have a partner that's equally invested in this with you, you know, Erin took up finance, you know, she was a sign language interpreter for the deaf and took up finance with the accounting classes to learn how to do invoices and billing. I started focusing on how do I sell the business and create statements of work and proposals and, you know, all of these legal things that I had to figure out. And so we started kind of, you know, doing the foundation kind of skunk works in the basement of my house. And it's funny because I was like, well, listen, it's, you know, no one really even needs an office anymore. And then I remember I just heard, you know, I was on the first call with my first customer and it sounded like my kids were murdering each other upstairs. And I was like, oh man, this isn't going to work. And so I'm like, I need to get a building, you know, I got to figure something out. I got to get out of this house, you know? And so um, we ended up getting a small, like tiny hole in the wall. It was like a one room, you know, part of a building that was like, you know, 300 square feet that ended up being our, our kind of our, where we started Trusted Sec. And then, you know, we grew from there. And now we have a, we're um, our new, uh, facility is going to be 40,000 square feet, you know, stay there facility, like really cool place. You know, it's big difference from where you started from to, to where you grow to. But, uh, you know, it was, it was really a culmination of a lot of different things. And in that evolution of trusted second, the early days, I love to get an understanding of where the, the founding of binary defense came out of that experience and, and maybe recognizing you know, a productization of, of cybersecurity that you are offering versus the services and consultation aspect of it? Yeah. So when you, when you start a business, you know, you got to look at what is my monetary investment going to be? And when you're starting it on yourself, by yourself, you have a couple options. You know, you can go the PE route and getting investors to come in to do that and, and, and you know, kind of crowd, you know, do it that way where you're really pumping a bunch of cash in the company in hopes that you can grow it and, and kind of expedite it. For me, I didn't like that route. I, I felt like I would, it wouldn't be my company. It wouldn't be my culture. It wouldn't be what I wanted to do. And so I was like, well, listen, you know, I don't need a lot of money to go and do consulting. So what I did is I you know, called up you know, all my friends and they, they, they were in security you know, uh, uh, positions at different companies. I'm like, hey, you know, can you float me some work for some months? You know, so I can go, I'll come out there and do security work. I'm like, heck yeah, dude, we'd love to have you come out. You're like one of the best security guys <laughs> out there. So you know, I, I ended up getting some contracts early on that you know, had some cash coming in that I could, you know, continue to float and then eventually hire another person. But, you know, when you look at uh, uh, security uh, consulting services, that's really where a lot of my expertise was. You know, I'd got out of the military, I'd done consulting for about five or six years. And then I went into the corporate side of the house. And, you know, I knew that there was a big deficiency and gap in companies that really struggle with security, like understanding what security was, because security is a really complex subject. You know, you think you have Hey, we have antivirus. We're good. Well, unfortunately, you know the hackers have gotten smarter and they've gotten figured out ways of getting around your antivirus products. And they're hacking companies all the time and they're holding you ransom. And you see all this stuff on the news. And you're like, am I protected? And so my my whole goal with binary defense was to take a lot of that complexity out of there, but it required a lot of capital. And so what I did first was build up trusted sec to a point to where I could get it in a position 
to where, you know, I was getting enough capital coming in that I could front starting another company. And, you know, I, I think I got to about 10 or 12 people when the binary defense front started to kind of go into motion. I had met an individual named Mike Valentine, who was uh, uh, retired and focused more on the logistics software development side of the house, but could come in as a CEO to help run the company because I didn't want to run and take away from the growth of TrustedSec. But I also wanted to be more on just focused on the technology aspects and the development pieces because that's what I'm good at, coding and writing code and figure out how hackers are breaking the systems. So I hired or I, I brought aboard uh, our CEO of the company that could run and manage the company day to day, build a sales organization and everything else. And then I came in as the CTO to help build the product and technology. And the whole purpose behind that was we created a, a 24-7 security operations center. Think of it as like an ADT for computer security systems where we're continuously monitoring for intrusions, looking for hackers. And it's a piece of software that you basically install on your workstations and your servers and things like that. And we continuously are updating it with new techniques that hackers are using so that it takes the complexity out of you know, a company having to have a full detection engineering you know, division that is focusing on what hackers are doing, which is a very big cost and things of that effect. So you offload that to us and we manage the security for your organization. And so that was really the, the mindset and vision because I knew there was a major need for that uh, to help companies get better with cybersecurity. And then binary defense has, has you know, skyrocketed and, and grown leaps and bounds. In fact, uh, from a pure employee perspective, uh, binary defense is larger. I think we have 157 people or something like that there, whereas we have 130 something, I think, uh, at Trusted Sec. So numbers change almost every day, it feels like. But uh, it's just they're, they're growing you know, every day, which is an awesome thing. Yeah. When, when you kind of set out on those two uh, endeavors, respectively, did you have a, a vision and a sense for the scale that, that they would achieve? Or how are you kind of thinking about the, the vision and the trajectory of those businesses? Yeah. I mean, I think Aaron and I had discussed, like, when Trusted Sec hit 30 people, we'd be good. And uh, now we're at 137 people uh, at Trusted Sec. So, you know, I don't think we ever envisioned Trusted Sec growing as large as it has and continues to grow, nor are we even close to any type of capacity. I mean, we're just, you know, adding on more and more folks, great folks, more customers. You know, we have a great uh, brand and, and name and reputation. I think that's one thing that I didn't really foresee, which was how large our brand would get in the industry. You know, when people come to Trusted Sec, it's you're going with the cream of the crop, the best folks, the, uh, the best consultants. We only have senior level resources. You know, we're focusing on quality of work. And then the binary defense front side, you know, I, I had a, an idea that I was going to grow to be a larger organization and, and continue to grow. So, you know, from a vision perspective, you know, from day one, we really tried to structure it as a, a, as a big company in many senses, uh, not, not, you know, from a culture perspective, more so like, you know, having a foundation of marketing and sales and HR and, and all that good stuff, you know, early on, because we, we knew that it was going to grow quickly and we need to be able to scale quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you look back hindsight 2020, I would have never envisioned trusted sec being as large as it was. And I would have thought binary defense would be probably half the size it is right now. I wouldn't have expected so much growth so quick. You, you had mentioned that Cybersecurity generally, it's it's one of these risks that organizations face that that I found also it tends to just be underestimated as a risk. Why do you feel that there is this like uninitiation uh, and familiarity with the, with the risks and threats that organizations and companies face with regards to to cybersecurity, and and how do you go about explaining its importance and, and severity? Yeah, that's a great question. I think. Most organizations think that their IT security is handled because they have IT people or that they leverage Microsoft, you know, for their email and that they're secure that way. Right. And I think it's just a, a lack of understanding around what attackers are doing and how they're actually forming their attacks. They, they recognize that you have an IT staff. They recognize that you have antivirus. They recognize that you purchased a firewall. You know, they recognize that you use Microsoft 365 and they take advantage of that and they use that against you. Statistically, only 22% of organizations use what's called multi-factor authentication or a second form of authentication when you're going to your you know, email box and then it you know, prompts the second you know, prompt up. And that's like one of the most basic security features, but it shows you 80% of the world doesn't even know that that feature even exists or doesn't want to burden their employees with it, let alone it's such a big step in protecting against you know, just some commodity-based attacks. So I think it's, it's a lack of understanding around the risks associated with doing technology and business. And, you know, I think they assume that their IT folks are taking care of it and addressing it. And nine times out of 10, we find that it's not happening. And, and we often get called 
after the fact, after they've been breached, after they've had ransomware, after their entire company is crippled, all of their intellectual property stolen, they're getting hit by distributed denial services and all of their servers are encrypted and their entire business is shut down and they want us to come in and fix it. I'm like, well, we can show you how the hackers came in, but at this point it's too late. It's past that that thing. You either have to pay the ransom, you know, or you have to rebuild from scratch, unfortunately, because you know they're using the same types of techniques and encryption that we would use uh, on our side. It's not possible to recover from these situations. So we've seen companies completely destroyed. We've seen companies that you know have to pay the ransom. They have to rebuild. Cyber liability insurance is a whole other area where it's getting more and more difficult to even get cyber liability insurance because there's so many breaches occurring from that side. So I think it's just a lack of fundamental understanding around what cybersecurity constitutes and where your risks are at. And that's really why, you know, at TrustedSec, you know, we have a lot of exploratory services that we do to like try to identify what where your security program's at. Like, is it super mature where you have no security? And here's the areas that you need to focus. Here's the top 10 things that you need to do to stop the basic level of attackers. And here's the things you need to focus on over the next few years. But like no one does that if they don't, you know, experience a data breach or they don't have somebody that's somewhat tech savvy or you have a board member that, you know, kind of knows a little bit of technology or security and is like, hey, what are we doing for cybersecurity? You know, cybersecurity is definitely still an afterthought in many cases. And I think most people think that they're just naturally protected. And honestly, it's just a matter of time before they're hit and their entire company is brought down. On that kind of reactive nature to the business, how do you get people to think proactively about it? And and how do you also on that front measure your own success and, and how do you like hold yourself accountable in, in kind of a preventative manner? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, for, for us, it's it's all about bringing education awareness out there, right? I'm out there speaking all the time. We have folks out there speaking all the time. We're on the news all the time. I mean, even uh, I don't know if you know the TV show, Mr. Robot, but I helped out the TV show, Mr. Robot with Remy Malik and Christian Slater. So I got to work with them quite a bit in the skits and stunts. In fact, they mentioned my name on the TV show, which is pretty cool. Remy Malik impersonated me and said, oh, I'm Dave Kennedy, uh, you know, on the actual TV show, which is kind of cool. But, you know, like education awareness, I think is, is really important. So bringing awareness to organizations, you know, most companies that are in the Fortune 5, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 space, they understand that they have to do something with security, right? I'm not saying every one of them is great at security, but they're focusing on cybersecurity as part of their overall technology footprint. It's where you start getting into the small to medium-sized businesses where you know you really have that lack of understanding around it. And, and I think you start to get more on the medium-sized business side, but it's still a, a largely unregulated space. Uh, unless you're taking credit cards, and there's this thing called the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, you really, in, in, in some, I guess, in healthcare, you have HIPAA, but that's not really big. You have high trust, which is another one, but Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's really nothing mandating that you do cybersecurity. So, you know, it's, it's kind of tread at your own risk on the Internet, you know, the wild, wild west type of thing. And I think it's, it's going out there and doing more education awareness. Now, for us, our, our entire company is built on excellence. And I, and I know that sounds cheesy, but like everything we do is checks and balances to make sure that, you know, we're doing the quality of work that we need to. And that it's peer reviewed and QA. We have an entire QA department that makes sure that they went through everything they needed to. It's it's a very stringent process of how we do our assessments and methodology. Now it's not so stringent that that they can't be hackers and be creative and things like that because we obviously employ hackers. We we are a group. We're a company of hackers that literally hack into computer systems for companies to show them where their weaknesses and vulnerabilities are. Now we're white hats, which means you know, hey, we're good people. You know, helping companies and organizations. We're not stealing your stuff. We do steal it. We got to put it back, unfortunately. But uh, you know, we're 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 really helping that. On, on the same thing on the binary defense front side, you know, we have what we call tier one, tier two SOC analysts or security operations center analysts that are continuously monitoring for intrusions and making sure that you know specific attacks aren't happening. And then we have teams that are sit, sitting there researching, going through all the data to make sure that everything is okay. So there's a lot of checks and balances in place to ensure that you know we're giving the best we possibly can to ensure these customers are safe and secure and prohibiting a breach and. I think what most people think about when they think about a, a hacker breaking through their firewall is that once they got through the firewall, the game is over. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the more time that a hacker has in your organization, the more damage you have. So if you can identify a threat in its earlier stages, like let's just say Bob and sales gets compromised, Bob's computer, it sucks that they got hacked, but it's better than all of your servers being hacked and encrypted, right? So can you shut them down earlier and earlier and earlier? so that it doesn't impact the rest of the company. And that's really where the cybersecurity industry is at saying, you know, we might, we might not be able to protect you 100% because you might have a new piece of technology implemented that you, you forgot about a password for, or, you know, you forgot to patch this specific system. But if they're successful, what do you do at that point in time and how do you shut them out uh, in the future? So it's a continual moving environment. But, you know, for us, 
you know, we have people dedicated just to R&D and research, making sure that we're staying ahead of the curve. You know, we focus a lot on, on the quality of our products. Uh, and that's been super, super important for us. I mean, I never want to see anybody complain that the quality of service that they had from a specific engagement wasn't the best that they've ever experienced. And that's, that's really important to us. We do net promoter scores. We do, um, you know, constant evaluations of our customers. How can we get better? You know, it's, if, if a customer has a negative experience, it comes directly to me. Like literally there's no if, ands or buts. Like I get notice of it and I, I'll tell you, I haven't had one in six months. So that's a great thing. <laughs> so, you know, we continuously try to improve ourselves. I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't take us down a slight Mr. Robot detour here. Because I think one one of the things, and I really would like to get your perspective on this now, it was, I think, lauded as a show that was celebrated for realistic representations of what hacking actually looks like. But my takeaway as someone who just viewed it actually was how much of it is actually done not through maybe technical hacking, but more like the social engineering hacking. And I know actually you've you've spent a good amount of time and work kind of putting and thinking about social engineering and, and maybe just from a, a terms and, and denotation perspective, like how, how do you differentiate between hacking and social engineering and your interest in, in that side of it and how that's kind of manifested? Yeah. You know, when you look at, at traditional hacks, you think of like, you know, some kid in the basement, you know, you know two o'clock in the morning with, you know, some Mountain Dew hacking away at computer systems. And the truth of the matter is, you know, hacking has become such a profitable state for organized crime groups, for nation states. You look at what China is doing from an intellectual property theft perspective. You look at what Russia is doing from a military preparedness perspective. There's a lot of threats out there. And organized crime, you know, one of these groups that uh, we're tracking called Conti has yielded over $190 million in ransomware alone. That's a lot of money that they've gotten just specifically for ransomware. That's just one group. So the profitability of hacking is there, Right. And there's a lot of ways of approaching hacking. You know, you can find a flaw in the computer system and you can hack them. But there's also the aspect of attacking what we call the human element or going after a person individually. And what's so complex with coupling technology and people is that, you know, let's just say you work in a company that has 5,000 employees. That's 5,000 potential vulnerabilities that you have, right? Because one user could be the entire downfall of an organization. And that's the practice of what we call social engineering, which is trying to manipulate somebody in some way, shape, or form through some sort of persuasion to get them to do an action on behalf of you without them knowing that it's bad. And so a lot of times you'll see, you know, hey, uh, you're going to lose your HR benefits tomorrow unless you open up this document and sign this and send it back. Well, that sounds stupid, but you, know, you make it look somewhat believable and you get an employee that doesn't know a lot about computers and all of a sudden now they're opening up this document which contains malicious code that's now executing on the computer itself. And now guess what? That firewall that you purchased, they're sitting behind that. You know, so if you take yourself as a castle, you know, they're behind those castle walls now. They're inside that castle. Now they have access to all the systems that this person has access to, including you know, servers and workstations. And now that one person becomes the catalyst for hacking into all of your other systems. And that's why social engineering is such a devastating blow to most organizations. And that's why we see most security breaches actually originate from what we call phishing or social engineering aspects. Phishing is you know, sending an email out to an individual, again, coaxing them into something that has a component of that, which is social engineering. Now, we don't typically see you know, a hacker in Russia trying to impersonate somebody over the phone. You know, accents, believability, things like that become a kind of an issue. There is a group out there right now. It's actually allegedly, it's, it's, it's not confirmed yet, but allegedly a 16-year-old... So you'd mentioned the, the breaches before. So uh, just recently, Microsoft, obviously a major, huge company, Okta, a major security single sign-on company, and LG, the manufacturer of TVs and everybody else, just experienced some major data breaches from this group called Lapsus. Uh, they, they just came out of nowhere. Like, I mean, like literally like four days ago, like, hey, we hacked into here and here's all their data. Hey, we hacked into here and here's all their data. Hey, we hacked into here. And I was there. like, whoa, these are huge monumental companies. I mean, you're talking... <laughs> You know, the backbone of single sign-on and how people authenticate, it's a system, massive breach. You know, you talk to, you know, Microsoft, the creator of obviously Windows and a lot of other things. And so you're like, this is huge. This is big. Turns out it might actually be a 16-year-old kid uh, out of the UK, which is really mind-blowing. But, you know, it shows you, I mean, this kid was apparently calling people up on the phone via social engineering and, and, and coaxing them into doing things uh, because he was crafty with the phone and crafty with technology. And that just shows you how easy it could potentially be when you take the human element into consideration. Because if I'm targeting one individual and I fail at that, well, I call up a second individual. Then I call up a third individual. Then I call up a fourth one. And the fifth one, finally, I get through. And, and that's, that's the, the, the issue that we run into in cybersecurity today 
is that the human variability that we have here is it's not a technological problem. It's a human problem. It's an education awareness problem. It's putting appropriate controls on those humans to ensure that they can't mess up. And in the event that they do, identify it and shut it down before it becomes a major problem in the rest of the organization. Yes, the human fallibility that's hard to solve for ultimately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get you get people that are just different, you know, uh, cuts. You know, you have people that, that focus on sales and, and their whole life has been sales. It's not technology. They're not technology savvy. They might have an iPhone. Or you have folks that have been working there for 60 years that, you know, barely know how to turn their computer on. You, I mean, you have people that work on shop floors that are sitting there spray painting cars. You know, they're not technology savvy. So, you know, you have all these different variabilities that, that really bring in all of this complexity. And unless you educate your users and unless you start to put in some proactive measures on security, those are all entry points into your network that can be cataclysmic to your entire organization. And that's where these ransomware groups have really taken advantage of. You mentioned the organizations in some sense are, are made up of, of hackers, if you will, on the, on the right side of it. But it's a little bit of kind of understanding your adversary, eating your own dog food, maybe even empathy for how the, you know, who you're trying to defend against thinks. How, how do you build proactively in this space, though, where threats proliferate so quickly? Like, how, how do you stay ahead of where these things are going and come from? Yeah, it's it's a it's a continuously evolving industry, right? You know, you look at we have a, a group that is specifically dedicated to what we call threat intelligence, and think of this as uh, after actions. Like after a company's been breached, let's evaluate what happened there and understand how they broke in and understand the techniques that they used so that we can refine and understand how hackers break in. So that's more after the fact. And we also have a research and development team that specifically focuses on understanding how new attacks can happen and how you can innovate in that area to get better from a research perspective and having your own techniques and tooling and things like that. And that's also very beneficial for us because we have a number of customers that I would consider top class high security programs, you know, that are really good at security that have done just an amazing job. And then the top 1% of security, a couple of those in the financial institution, some of them are the DOD contracting, you know, areas, you know, uh, medical research, some of those in there. So some, some really high end areas that have spent a lot of time protecting their intellectual property as well as their company and organization. So for us, we have to, there's a difference what we call simulation emulation. So we have to simulate in many cases, what we call nation state attacks, which is having the same level of sophistication as China, for example, or as Russia that would want to have access to that type of data. So we have to research, you know, cyber weapons and develop our own exploits and attacks, you know, things that don't get detected and so we do very much the same thing as an adversary would and have the same types of weaponization and tooling um, as an adversary would or as an NSA would. I don't know if you uh, recall a couple mm. of years ago, the NSA had a major data breach of their hacking tools that they used to conduct intelligence operations across the world. And it literally caused havoc across the entire world because these were like literally skeleton keys for any Windows machine that was out there. You know, there's a ton of, of hacking code out there. It was like, literally magic sauce that would open up a computer and give you all the access, you know, and data on it and, um, you know, wreak havoc on the world because those types of tools aren't designed for general public use. And, you know, it takes millions and millions and millions of dollars of research to develop those types of weapons, essentially on the cyber front that you have to develop, you know, in the private sector to be able to emulate that. So we, we spend a lot of time protecting that because obviously those are things that we don't want released out to the public in any way that cause harm or damage. But at the same time, we have to have the same types of capabilities as nation state intelligence agencies do uh, to be able to really conduct, you know, full-fledged operations against a company that may have a sophisticated security program. And we need to target that data. So your, I mean, your, your passion for the space is, is, is more than evident. Um, and I, I know in kind of parallel to the, the companies that you built, you also had started a cybersecurity conference, uh, DerbyCon, a few years back. I, I'd love to just, you know, hear a little bit of the story of, how that came to be and the evolution of, of DerbyCon. You know, this was, uh, I think we started DerbyCon, what was it? Probably would have been 2010, I think is when we started DerbyCon. We ran eight years. You know, one of those things again where, you know, I go to Aaron and I'm like, hey, I want to start a conference in Kentucky. And if it fails, we're going to have to take a second mortgage out of our house. You know, she's like, <laughs> again, you know, she's like, hey, listen, I don't think this is a great idea, but, you know, we'll figure this out. You know, what I was trying to do is, you know, cybersecurity is, is when, when, when I was getting into cybersecurity, there wasn't college courses to learn how to hack. You know, there wasn't YouTube videos on how to hack. There wasn't, you know, this, this industry that we see today. You know, it was creativity. It was figuring things out that nobody had before. It was 
reverse engineering and understanding how a developer wrote something and finding flaws in it. It was a lot of hours of nerding out on a computer, you know, sitting there trying to understand how things work is a big puzzle gathering thing. And as the industry grew, we needed more mechanisms to train people that are qualified to come into the industry to help support the need for cybersecurity. I mean, you look at cybersecurity, there's a such a massive gap in how many jobs we need. But the problem is, is that these kids that are coming out of college, a lot of these college programs are so bad for, for teaching cybersecurity that they're literally at a, a foundational base level that you would have to spend another you know, two to five years to train them up to get to a basic level of understanding of cybersecurity. And so, you know, we've partnered with a lot of colleges. Dakota State University is probably my favorite from a cybersecurity program perspective. You know, Kent State University does a, does a decent job. Uh, locally here in Cleveland, Stark State, we've got hired a number of folks from Stark State. So they're, they're coming around and developing better programs. But the, the biggest thing was, you know, from a, a conference perspective, we wanted to create a conference that was kind of had that Midwestern feel, family friendly. You can come in and learn whether you were just starting off. Because what would happen in a lot of these conferences is that it was they were so big that you had to be like an elite hacker to, you know, learn from another elite hacker. Uh, and it wasn't this knowledge sharing uh, type of thing. And so it was more of a secluded tribal type of thing that was happening in, in the security industry. And so I, I decided to create DerbyCon to be really for new people coming into the industry to help them out and to get this industry moving forward and to get a kickstart and everything else. And the first year, we needed 500 people uh, to break even. And if we didn't get 500 people, that was the second mortgage in my house. First year, we got 1,400 people. And uh, then after that, we started selling out year after year after year. We couldn't even keep capacity. We still sold out 7,000 tickets in less than 20 seconds for our conference. And you know, the conference got bigger. We, we set big band names. We had, we had like Wu-Tang come. We had Vanilla Ice. We had Sublime. We had The Offspring. Uh, we had Infected Mushroom, which is a heavy techno band that's really liked in the security industry. Uh, we had these big bands come and play huge shows, and it became this massive event. And we, we did nine years of DerbyCon, and it just took, you know, it, it started off as being like this small project where we wanted to help people. And then it started becoming like our entire lives because we'd like literally finished DerbyCon in September. And then we take a month off and then we start planning for the, for the next year. And it's, you know, nine months of planning, you know, of trying to get this big show to run and just taking away from our jobs and our businesses and growing. So eventually we decided, hey, it's time to kind of cut the cord on this one. It was a great experience. And, you know, we didn't do it for any type of monetary value. It was to give back to the community. In fact, um, from a conference perspective, we raised more money for charities than any other conference in the cybersecurity industry. Like, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to various charities each year, you know, and, and just made a massive impact and difference to people and helping people out. And every month, every year, we would either donate to charity or invest it in the next year to make the conference even better. So it wasn't a, a business money thing for us in any way. It was really trying to help the industry. Now, were there things that helped, you know, the business model? Obviously, people knew that I was running DerbyCon and I'm trusted sack and binary defense. And so, yes, you know, through attrition and brand recognition and things like that, I'm sure we got, you know, definitely got benefits from that. But that was never the goal. It was really to create an awesome conference that people could come to and have a ton of fun. You know, it wasn't this boring, stuffing, stuffy conference where, you know, you're sitting through massive amounts of presentations, you're learning something, everybody's accepted, everybody felt welcome, and you just have some major, major awesome fun. And uh, that ended up becoming the conference itself. And it, it was just uh, an awesome experience and, and one that I look back and I'm like, man, you know, we like set up band, we had no idea what we were doing. Like we set up band <laughs> shows for Wu-Tang and I was partying with Wu-Tang at the end of it, you know. It was just like, it was crazy. You know, Paul Oakenfold and, you know, just like, it was stuff that you never would have thought, you know, as a kid growing up, you're going to be like setting up a massive, co you know, conference with all of these people and, you know, being the head figure of it and everything. It was just something I, I never would have ever anticipated, especially being that computer nerd that graduated from Bedford High School. <laughs> well, as the uh, as the conference kind of grew in, in popularity, it, it seems evident that your your public persona kind of grew in, in parallel with it. And, I, and I'm curious, just you know, with a few hundred thousand followers across social media under hacking Dave, right. As the handle, how do you manage that your public persona? How do you, how did you even like think about that as you, as you started to gain a, a real following? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I never would have thought I would have been, I don't know, I put in quotes, a figurehead or somebody that, you know, is, is considered one of the leaders in, in cybersecurity. You know, it, it was always just a, a passion and art for me. I really enjoyed it. It's what I found my home in. It's, you know, I 
a lot of people when they come home, you know, they they have their own hobbies, whether it's woodsmithing or whatever. You know, for me, it was programming and figuring out how things worked and reverse engineering. And this is how my brain worked. And so, you know, for me, it was also sharing and collaborating with other people. So I would always share my work. I'd give my stuff away for free. And then people are probably like, that's crazy. It's stupid. But the open source community was a huge help for me growing up in this industry and learning. And so me contributing back to the open source community was such an important piece of it. So, you know, really started, you know, I, I released new tool sets that would help hacking. I know that sounds horrible. But we, you know, good people need hacking tools to simulate what bad people do as well. So, you know, I was creating, uh, you know, tools for people to help hack to help companies get better with cybersecurity postures. And so it started, you know, um, resonating with that. And a lot of the tools became really popular. And then I started going to the news quite a bit. And that just started, you know, growing. And one thing with me is, you know, I, I, I'm always big on, you know, helping other people. So if somebody asked me a question or, you know, as like a career advice or how to program something, I would just stop what I'm doing and go and help them out. So that type of, of relationship that I had with the community, you know, being so small at that time and then eventually growing, I think helped that persona. And I've always been pretty transparent about my life and who I am and what I do and share my experiences. A lot of people are very secluded and, and you know, you know, most people think cybersecurity, I'm going to be super paranoid. I'm not like, you know, like I post my stuff out there as, as, as is, as, as of who I am. Uh, I own a lot of guns in my house. So I figure that's good self-defense uh, if I need it. But, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, my, my persona has been big and I've always been, been helping give it back. In fact, one of the things that I started doing was helping high schools develop their computer computer programming classes and uh, cybersecurity classes. And so I took a position on the Bedford uh, Technology Board, and I also uh, ended up building a state-of-the-art e-games facility for them, and they call it the David Kennedy Center of Leadership, uh, Gaming and Leadership Excellence at Bedford High School, which is giving, you know, if you look at Bedford High School, net medium income is $30,000 or less, which is way under the you know, national average. So a very poverty stricken uh, location. They've had a lot of issues there with gang related members and crime and, and everything else. And that's my nuts where I grew up at. So I helped build this new esports gaming facility and I donated and funded the whole thing and and, and built it. And, um, and we give, uh, because of that specific game, esports gaming facility, and parents are probably like, why are you giving, you know, video games to kids in school? It's a whole different area, and it actually affords 11 new scholarships every year for kids that would have never had the opportunity to have scholarships going to college. And um, they have to maintain good grades. In fact, a story about that, one of the kids was like a D.C. student, and he really wanted to be on the eSports team. And, uh, you know, he's like, listen, he he busted his ass, got his grades up to a B's and A's, made the team, got a scholarship afterwards. So, you know, life-changing event, you know, stuff for, for kids like that. So, you know, it's not just about, you know, what my, my persona is from a hacking perspective and always kind of contributing to the hacking community. It's also about helping others out and trying to do more. We're, we're part of doing that work. We partner with the Cavaliers for the Harvest for Hunger. You know, we give time off every year for, for charity events for all of our people, including funding and things like that. We really try to keep with the sense of helping others while we grow as well. And that persona, I think, has really helped out both on the company side, too. Do you find that you're able to still exercise your passion to actually get in and do some of the hacking or do you find yourself more at the kind of organizational level as a CEO as a leader uh, a little removed from it how do you how do you balance that and I guess with that like what what are you excited about looking forward over the next few years there was a period of time where I started to lose my ability to to do the hacking stuff because I was so much focused on the company and when I recognize that, I put things in place to ensure that I can still continue to do the fun hacking stuff that I like to do. So, you know, I have a great leadership structure. Um, I have a COO, uh, chief operating officer that, you know, hired about two years ago. That was just a godsend for our company. I mean, guys is just absolutely brilliant. His name's Eric and helps run our entire operations. I mean, literally, he's acting essentially, lack of a better term, as our CEO. You know, running the day-to-day operations. I have a great leadership team on sales and marketing, on our consulting division. So really, I don't need to run the day-to-day activities. Now, I'm still brought in for big decisions or visionary stuff that a CEO does. I put, I put those in air quotes. But at the end of the day, I still get to hop on engagements. I still get to hack. I still get to do the coding. I still get to do this, the fun stuff that I enjoy doing while being kind of like a part-time CEO in the same place. Same thing on the, the binary defense front side. I've always been the CTO. So I'm heavily involved in the technology development, the roadmap. I don't do hands-on coding as much anymore, but I'm actively involved in the vision and roadmap and strategy of that, which is my, my, my fun stuff. I love getting in and figuring out issues and, you know, like, oh, hey, we should do this and figure this out because I know the code base. I'm like, let's just do it this way. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. Cool. You know, and 
So it's just you know coming in and being able to to do the things that I actually like doing and having fun with, and I don't have to worry about all of the other things that I really don't like doing. But it took a while to get there. You know, it wasn't like you know I remember when I first started TrustedSec, I was doing sales, marketing, you know, HR, and you know, uh, reporting and hacking and coding. And, you know, putting in like, you know, 100 hours a week, just making sure that the company's successful so I don't, you know, crush myself. But, you know, over time, I've been able to definitely bring in people that remove those components and do it 10 times better than me to run the company better more. And and so it really has allowed me to be more successful at what I like to do and home in on what I like to do. Because I feel like if you don't like what you're doing at work and you don't like, you know, what you do day to day, there's no reason to do it. You know, change, do something different. You know, I noticed, you know, when I was really just focusing on just the company aspects of things, I'm like, well, hey, but I have all this hacking going on over here with these cool guys that I really like a lot of these guys and gals, you know, like, I don't get to do that anymore. How do I do that again? And so I'm like, well, I'm going to hire a COO that'll come and do this stuff that I don't like to do. And it's way better at, at that. And he likes doing it. So then I'll go and do it. So and then it all just worked out. And it's been been awesome uh, to see that growth. And honestly, with him in place, the company is doing 10 times better. You know, and I'm not saying I wasn't doing bad, but you know, like from an organizational perspective and how we look at profit and loss and how we look at projections and, you know, metrics and forecasting. I didn't do any of that. I'm like, hey, I'm sure we're doing fine. Let's go, you know? And uh, so we had a lot more informed decisions with data and things like that. So it's been, it's been a good, a good ride. <laughs> As you look forward uh, over the next few years with, with both organizations, anything else that you're, you're thinking about, what, what, what has you most excited about the future? We are definitely always researching new services. We're building a brand new service right now that I think has the potential of being our actually our largest service that we have, period. And so we're doing a lot of the plumbing work for that to make all of that work, the development and coding. So we're far from, you know, this is what the company looks like, right? The company is always going to change with the times and it's always going to innovate and be ahead of the curve. And, and so, you know, we see certain trends happening in the market. It's really important for us that we just, you know, created about a year and a half ago. Uh, cloud-centric service offering for for consulting where, you know, because a lot of companies are going into cloud infrastructure and cloud security is an important piece there. So that that team has exploded and grown. So, you know, we're always adding on what is important in the industry and what we see is kind of happening from a visionary perspective. And so we're always building those types of things. I also, you know, look at other things too, like outside of security. Like I happen to invest in a basketball technology company, you know, that has nothing to do with cybersecurity whatsoever. Uh, and now I'm like running literally, I'm fixing, you know, basketball tech machines and things like that, which, you know, you think, well, why, why are you doing that? But it's fun. You know, my kids play basketball. I like basketball. I coach my kids' AAU teams. So, you know, uh, so I, I, I'm now, you know, working on a whole other business that is basketball technology integration and making kids better with their shots and performance tracking and stats and things like that. We just came out with an app that I, you know, spearheaded. So, you know, it's not going to be just cybersecurity. I like to, you know, whatever my interest is in my hobby, I would love to do. Like right now, I, I uh, because of COVID and uh, I, I got really heavy into powerlifting and bodybuilding. And uh, so I lift six days a week. You know, I, I run, do HIIT training three days a week. I eat really healthy. I completely transform my body type. You know, I used to be kind of like a, I used to be obese. I used to be 315 pounds, but, uh, you know, then I shed all that weight and I was kind of like the skinny fat and I'm, you know, pretty, pretty strong. I do a 545 pound deadlift right now is my, my current max, but, uh, oh you know, yeah, but, That's uh, you no, know, like whatever, like I might do something on the, on the, the fitness side, you know, who knows, but, uh, you know, it's just a matter of continuing to, to have fun with what you do and, and, and invest in what you like to do. And I think that's an important piece for entrepreneurs is when you start to have a successful business, you can branch off into other areas that is your passion, because if it's your passion, you're going to dedicate the time to make that successful. And it's that belief in yourself. I think that's in a major important role. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's incredible. We'll, we'll use that as a, a bookend here, tie it back to, to Cleveland specifically. But one of the, the questions uh, that we ask everyone who, who comes on the show actually is not specifically their favorite things, but for things that other people may not know about here in Cleveland. So hidden gems. So with that, I'll ask you for your, your hidden gems here in Cleveland. If you go down to downtown Cleveland, there's the uh, the House of Blues. I don't know if you know, but above there, there's an awesome uh, bar area that you can have a membership for. That's like a super secluded, really swanky, really nice bar. That's absolutely beautiful. So that's my hidden gem up there. That's my kind of hangout spot. If, you know, I don't I don't drink much anymore, but you know if I'm bringing customers or things like that, that's kind of like my go to spot that I'll go to because it's never packed. 
I mean, it's amazing rooms. They have uh, a completely separate high end or high end more type of meal up there. You can get for a di- from a dinner perspective. So different different uh, kitchen. So that's one of my main ones there. Um, Hinkley Lake is like my sanctuary. So if you're familiar with uh, the Hinkley area in Medina, Hinkley Lake is just this beautiful lake that has this trail that goes around there. And I do a lot of rucking there. So I have a rucksack that I put, you know, 45 pounds on and I just go do that, you know, do like six miles. You know, I think it's three miles around. So I do it twice. So it's six miles to kind of get my steps in and fun. Uh, those are probably the two main ones I can think of off the hand. Those are great. Uh, the beauty of it is that uh, those, those are two completely new ones. Uh, that's great. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your story and, and about the, the work that you're doing. Uh, I really appreciate it. And it's for, for again, for better or worse, it's, it's as topical as it's ever been. And so thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, can't wait to go through all the previous podcasts and catch up to, to all this. It's awesome what you're doing here and uh, you know, hearing other people's perspectives from an from a entrepreneur perspective and what they've done in Cleveland. Uh, my hometown is Cleveland, so a huge basketball fan, have season tickets to the Cavs. So you'll actually see the Trusted Tech Cavs logo up on the top of the backboard when they're slamming, uh, doing a slam dunk. But, uh, you know, go Cavs, go Guardians, go Browns, uh, all that good stuff. So <laughs> if, uh, if folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, what is the, the best way for them to do so? Yeah, you can always hit me up on social media, which is, you know, at Hacking Dave. It's just literally how it sounds. Also, our Trusted Tech website, if you just go to the contact form, that also goes to me as well. So, I mean, it goes to our entire team, but it'll go to me too. So feel free to hit us up anytime there and be happy to respond to you anytime. And if you have any questions or you know, questions about business or cybersecurity or anything else, uh, always happy to go through that and, and you know, share my experiences or anything I can help with that, with that uh, from that front. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dave. Really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks again, Jeff. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.